As a OneOuter.com podcast listener, we're offering a special discount for joining PokerXFactor.com. You can qualify for a massive $70 off your sign-up. All you need to do is enter promotional code OneOuter70. That's O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-7-0. Okay, welcome to episode two of the new OneOuter.com podcast with none other than Alex Fitzgerald, also known as Assassinato Online. Lots of great feedback on the last episode, so if you haven't listened to it yet, then check it out on OneOuter.com or get it through iTunes by searching OneOuter. How are you, Alex? I'm good. I'm uh, fighting a cold just like yourself, but uh, I'm not really into complaining about when I'm sick. I find when I don't complain that much about it, it seems to go away a little faster. So, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. I don't know. Do you agree with that? Well, I kind of like complaining about it uh, to my <laughs> girlfriend. She kind of like nurses me and like, you know, looks after me and goes and gets stuff. And I can say like, oh, juice, juice, you know, she'll go and get me juice and uh, that's stuff good. like that. I got, you know? I got the experience. My, my fiance is a physical therapist and she has just so many people that are just so needy and just always like, I'm sick. I, you got to help me. We were doing our engagement party recently and there there was some woman just like calling repeatedly to like say i i don't feel good after my workout well when was the last time you worked out two weeks ago well you're probably not going to feel that good right now because you just worked out for the first few times but anyway yeah, yeah i don't i don't know yeah i like to once in a while just completely throw the towel in and let my uh my fiance nurse me back to health yeah well sit so like with you being based in costa rica you know south america I, when I was in Vegas, there was a Mexican uh, taxi driver, female taxi driver, and uh, I was recommended this In-N-Out burger. I'd never been, you know, and there's none of these in Europe or whatever. So I got like, a, it was told it was so amazing. So I got like a taxi to the drive-thru, you know, for like In-N-Out burger. And um, this like Mexican lady, I mean, she was a really big woman, <laughs> uh, was, was driving and she was like, talking away and talking away and she was going on about her husband and stuff and she says like south america there's very few like major illnesses it's like something to she her theory was it's like something to do with the spicy food and lots of spices and stuff's really good for like the immune system and she says also the people there don't bitch and moan like every time they're ill they just sort of get on with it and she's like if you think about sick and talk about being sick then you can like sometimes like it's psychosomatic you can like bring that shit on yeah, I think that's. A, I think there's a lot of truth to that. I don't. There's not as much. I I just read this article. It was. I thought the naming of the article was brilliant, and if there was nothing else written on this piece of paper, it'd still be amazing. And it was uh, such an amazing article. I can't remember the exact wording, but it was. It was something along of being busy is not a status symbol, and it just. Oh, I re- yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I read that was on Twitter. It was um, exhaustion is not a status symbol. Exhaustion or is not a status. Yeah, that's much better yeah. worded. Is it probably why this person is a professional writer and I'm not? But it was exhaustion is not a status symbol, and it's just I notice like when I'm in the states, like just everybody has a problem with something. Oh, I'm not feeling. I'm feeling a little under the weather today. I don't know if I'll go in, and uh, just pretty much a lot of my family members too. Just you know, anytime things were getting overwhelming in life or maybe the focus of life wasn't going to be on them. It was, Hey, you know, Nike told me the world revolves around me and it's going to revolve around me. I'm not feeling so good here. It's if you're complaining, like everybody kind of gives you a look like you're an idiot. Like, you know, I mean, it's okay to be sick and just go, Hey, give me a second. I, you know, I got a bit of a sore throat. Nobody's, everybody's going to understand that. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. But if you start complaining about it all the time, it's not really going to, uh, nobody's really going to look upon it favorably. And I mean, they still, I mean, just having a fiance, soon to be wife that works in the health industry. I realize these people have just as many problems as anyone, but I think, yeah, the spicy food does like clean you out a bit. I think the quality of food as well. I never really feel sick here because I'm eating fresh fish and fresh, fresh vegetables and stuff. But when you, you eat like as much as I love in and out burger, you know, In-N-Out Burger is probably like the healthiest fast food in America, and it's like not much better than like the crappiest fast food place here. Yeah. <laughs> because there's just so many food regulations here and all that. And every time I go back to the states, I feel like I'm getting sick. And mm-hmm. I think it's just like 
the medication culture as well. We just we take a pill for everything. Have you ever watched CNN in the States? Yeah, yeah. It's just every other commercial is like, hey, man, is your depression medication not working quite well <laughs> enough? We got an ad. Yeah. We got an ad on for that. Like, hey, you got a bit of a nasal drip. Do you have a, you know, is your yeah. is your leg restless? Do you remember that one? Restless leg syndrome. <laughs> did you did you guys have that in Europe? I'm not I'm not sure. It doesn't ring a bell. There, no, there was like a big thing. They were like, maybe you had, if like you were just one of these people who couldn't settle down. They said like, maybe you have restless leg syndrome, which is right. just your you can't your your leg moves around a bit. So they would give you just something that would like deaden your leg while while you were playing uh, while you were hanging out. And it was just God, isn't this taking it a little far? And I've never. Yeah. I tell people this, I've never seen a commercial for a medication once in Costa Rica, and I watch a lot of really bad telenovelas. So, yeah. I mean, I would know by now. But anyway, a little bit off topic. I'll let you get on with the program. We'll talk about MTTs and making lots of money now. Yeah, yeah. that's. We'll talk about the right kind of sick. Did mm. you see that inroad there? That was just... <laughs> that was excellent. That's why you get paid the big bucks, Barry. <laughs> that's it. That's it. You know? Yeah, call me. Uh, bluff or whatever, any of the big ones. Who are they? Actually, I don't think there's anyone, but I think everyone's broke in the poker world. There's, there is no big bucks really now, no, apart if you're right. There isn't, man. I, uh, I like a lot of times people want something from me, and I like, I send them my general fee, and people, I, I would understand if they said like, hey, we can't field that. Could you do something a little less? I'd be, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I get like really offended emails back. Like, you really think you're worth that? We can't even pay Phil Holm, you fat. How do you think we're gonna pay you that? And I'm like, you know, I, it's not, it's not so much. I think I'm worth that much, but if you told me to roof your house for $20, I wouldn't do it either. If you're going to have mm. me sit on my ass in front of a computer for three hours and pound out something that people are going to use against me to beat me in poker, I'm not asking for that much, but you got to pay me something. And there, yeah. you know, I've had people, I can't, I'm not going to say names, but like training websites have tried to get me back from Pocket Fives Poker uh, training. I said, like, mm. you know, I'm really loyal to them, but you know, there's, I mean, if you're offering a lot, I'm sure they would understand as well. And mm -hmm. even when I say, you know, okay, so here's the price we can start negotiating. I, I get like, what? Like, who do you think you are, Phil Galfon? I'm like, okay, this is not the way to negotiate. If you think I'm not worth that much, you obviously had interest in me. That's why you contacted me. Coming back with who the hell do you think you are is probably not going to get me to sign on. You know, and it, yeah. it was always pretty reasonable in what I knew other people on that site were getting paid who were, you know, about the same tier of what player I was. And yeah, anyway, yeah, everybody's broken poker, too many fish, but I mean, not enough fish in the sea, but that's it. And then, <laughs> get your, get your site businesses up and running and, or bitcoins. Have you seen all this Bitcoin nonsense? Like a, I can't remember. If we, is this the one that's like a digital currency? Yeah. It's really fascinating actually, especially with, you know, like my economics background and actually the theory of currencies and, you know, money supply and stuff like that. When you actually, read into Bitcoin. It's basically a currency that was created by some Japanese guy um, a few years ago. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, I had to <laughs> And it's off. like the the way that they're created, so the way like a new Bitcoin per se is created is by computers solving cryptography, like puzzles or some shit, right? <laughs> so basically people can mine for them from your computer. You can mine for Bitcoins. It's called Bitcoin mining. And um, I'm just speaking from like what I've read here. I mean, I haven't looked into it too much, but so what you can do is you can set your computer up to mine. And if it solves one of these cryptography puzzle type things, then your account, the computer that's done it is credited with a Bitcoin. Now these Bitcoins are sold. And now years ago, you couldn't do anything with them. But now lots of companies are taking them. Uh, they are currently today, I think they were worth like close to $200. And about two months ago, they were worth $35. And I was going to buy a few just to like see how the process worked. But I didn't. I was like, oh, I'll come back to it or whatever. And it's up to like $200. There's a few guys that have became Bitcoin millionaires. Wow. And there's a, really cool, there's a really cool tweet going about just now. It's like some guy a few years ago paid 10,000 Bitcoins for a pizza when they were worth like you know a few cents each or whatever. He was like, oh I'll, transfer, I'll transfer 10,000 Bitcoins if someone goes gets me a pace for a pizza and gets it sent to my house and they worked it out like today it would be like a million dollars or something you know oh and uh <laughs> so lots of poker site uh brian mycon you know like donk down radio and stuff 
he's involved with the poker site in America, like sales with clubs or something, and they play with bitcoins. Right. And so, like, it seems to get be getting quite a lot of traction. And I even read, like, in Forbes and stuff, there's like institutions looking to like buy pieces of this. So, I mean, maybe two hundred dollars, you know, it could just go keep going and going. But the whole weird thing is, is it's there's only ever going to be twenty one. I think it's 21 million bitcoins created um you know like in circulation sort of thing right uh once it gets to that that's it stopped so it's a fixed money supply and there's lots of like you know economic type theory that you could go into i'm not going to but it's it, there's lots of flaws and whatever but they're saying like it's a big sort of you know up yours to the banking industry and the way the government's you know because the dollar is like a fiat currency it's backed by nothing now and that's so it's just really interesting. People might want to Google it, Bitcoin. If they haven't, I've been aware of it for a while, but if you have not, it's it's a really interesting read when you go into it. That's a, um, yeah, sorry, go yeah, ahead. on you go. No, on you go, Alex. No, the, it's it's crazy how you're just crafting this digital society now. It's uh, have you ever heard of this book, Ready Player One? No. It's no. it's going to be like Willy Wonka for our kids. I'm pretty convinced. It's about it's about a kid who plays an MMORPG. Do you know what that means? Uh, RPG, I know, but the role-playing game, isn't it? Yeah, massively multiplayer online role-playing game. So it's like yeah. people who play like EverQuest or whatever, they play our World of Warcraft. And it, yeah, fair. Yeah. And it ends up like jet fuel becomes so expensive and uh, there's just the world can't support 12 billion people or something in the future that most people just live in this one MMORPG. And the creator makes a lot of things for free, creates like free schools and stuff. And he also creates a currency that ends up existing outside of the yen and the USD and all this. And it becomes right. comparable to it. And then the governments become weakened by this online society that no one can track, nobody can get into. And it's, uh-huh. and I was thinking, you know, it, it's really weird reading this book because I remember using like my e-passport card in like South Korea to like get money from some Russian website. And I was like, what science fiction universe am I in? You know what I mean? That you could just yeah. make money from playing, you know, so, something that to me brings up memories of like three card Monty. Like I still am flabbergasted. I make up, I make money at poker. It's still very bizarre to me to make money from a game. And it's, you know, like if I wanted to live in South Korea or any other country, it would have been so difficult to do t- only 10 years ago. There would just, you know, how would I find a job? I'd have to get a four-year degree. Very, very difficult in the United States. The United States costs about $100,000 to get a lot of four-year degrees. Minimum, maybe like 40, 50. And if you take out student loans, you're probably going to be six figures in debt to the banks. You can't go travel. The, they, no. they might not say anything, but they're keeping you in the States and they're keeping you working for them. And you probably, by the time you're 30, 35, you're softened up. You're probably not going to have much motivation not that this is their intention but you're not gonna have much motivation to travel and open your mind i was thinking i'm 19 i can just go anywhere like anywhere yeah. there's an atm i can do this and what is e-passport where is this based on you know what i mean like yeah. where, where is this credit card coming from could i call the e-passport headquarters could i you know like walk into there where is this this is like yeah. somewhere you know what i mean and obviously it feels like fictional money at some point you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's just like, how, how does this translate to like, in there it was like Korean won. And it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how much more, you know, how the nations are going to react to people, people's businesses coming off of, you know, land they have to rent and pay taxes on and are just going online. And as people go, you know what, man, I don't want to give 50% of my taxes to the government. I'm going to fly to Malta or I'm going to go to Dubai and put my money in there. Are, yeah, you know what I mean? It's stuff like that, and I, it's going to be interesting to see where people immigrate and how this, what this does to governments. Anyhow, we, uh, I think a lot of our podcasts are going to go like this, just you and me BSing. And, yeah, I think some people might get something from that. You know, they might be interested. Other people might think we're two mental patients just rambling. <laughs> so, uh, whatever, it's all good. Okay, let's get down to business anyway. Um. Right, follow us on Twitter at oneouter.com. That's O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-D-O-T-C-O-M. And follow Alex at The Assassinato. That's at T-H-E-A-S-S-A-S-S-I-N-A-T-O. And don't forget to like the oneouter.com Facebook page, which is at facebook.com slash oneouter. Uh, that way we'll 
be kept up to date with all the latest podcast happenings and you can tweet myself questions for Alex, uh, which would probably be the easiest thing because if you tweet them to Alex, he has to like send them to me. But do mention Alex in the tweet and stuff. But if you just give all the questions and email to me, I can sort them out and, you know, fire Alex with them all. And uh, we can try and, you know, act like locusts and get as much out of his poker brain as possible. Um, <laughs> so, right, Alex, last time we sort of discussed this sort of mailbag thing. And I've been thinking of names for the podcast and I might put that out on Twitter. I was thinking, uh, what was it? Listen, learn and earn. Right. That was that was one. That's catchy. And that was catchy. I thought that was OK. And the other one was just simple. Ask Assassinato. You know, <laughs> alliteration. Is that what you call? Yeah. It? Yeah. Yeah. Ask, ask Assassinato anything. Ask, there you go. Ask, <laughs> ask ass. I don't know. But anyhow. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, OK, so we've had loads of questions in. a couple of them were from last time that we didn't get to and a couple of new ones. So. We'll start with the one, a guy on Twitter, he's called Secret Poker Player on Twitter. So uh, that's quite ironic in that. I, I am I don't intrigued. Know. <laughs> uh, so this is from Secret Poker Player on Twitter. Um, I'm not sure if it's at, I don't have his at handle, but anyway, Secret Poker on Player, uh, Secret Poker Player. And he has, uh, Alex, did you have a eureka moment about the game? I, uh... I think I'm a little too dead spiritually to realize when I have eureka moments. No, but I'm kind of, I, I don't know. I don't really, there, there were definitely times when I was getting into some of the mathematics of double barreling and check raising and doing certain plays where I went, oh my God, you can't, there's no human lo- being alive that could be playing like these players and could defend it versus this play. There is a serious imbalance and this, I don't know if correct is the right word, but this, this puts them back to where they should be, which is mucking the hand. And it wouldn't be so much of a eureka moment, but I've always been a really slow learner. And I tell people that all the time. Like if you talk to people I play, like when I was like 15, there was, a, there was one guy putting little, I, I still don't know how lucky, I couldn't believe how lucky this was. There was a guy who just decided he was going to run a poker tournament almost two days one day, two days a week at his house, and there were all kinds of players. They were all, like, in their 30, 35, and I, I showed up, like, 15, like, yo, what's up? I want to play. And they let me play, and, like, you know, they're, and like they'll tell you I didn't win one tournament in, like, two years or something like that. Like, I just, and I had, like, the sunglasses and the headphones, and I was serious, man, and I just, like, I couldn't do it. And Well, they didn't. Sunglasses and headphones don't make you better. I no, thought, I know. I had the everyone that sorry. Yeah, sorry, I thought everyone that wore the like Beats by Dre's were like instant, you know, Ivies or whatever. I know, especially <laughs> if you get a color that's slightly feminine but could possibly oh, yeah. be manly. You know, like the purple ones. The purple ones really show your expression. The, yeah. By the way, the guys who created that like didn't make anything from it. But anyway, that's a very yeah. interesting article. <laughs> that's kind of, that's uh, but uh, the. But yeah, it was a, oh, you have to gel your hair as well. If you gel your hair, hair, have a hoodie and have the headphones, you can't lose at poker. And make sure you look very intensely like you're taking a crap every time somebody opens and you're on yeah. the button. Anyhow, but uh, I'm going to say anyhow a few more times. But I was a really slow learner. I don't know if I had many eureka moments. I'm trying to think. There, that definitely, like getting into the mathematics, and if you do contact me at assassinatocoaching at gmail.com, there you go, got the plug in. But yeah. I'll show you where those points of interest are. They, If you check out my recent Pocket Fives training videos, I let a pretty serious one go. There's a lot of cash game guys that, you know, they see those videos in there. Uh, <laughs> you know, like, uh, I don't know if you should be publishing that. And there's, mm-hmm. but at the same time, it, it's like what we discussed in the last podcast that, you know, I, we could publish this stuff in the New York Times. Probably a lot of people aren't going to do it. And pe- yeah. people are getting better, and people are getting better at MTTs, but there's just certain points where the guy's next bet is going to need to be, like, all in. You'll be about 35 big blinds deep. One interesting thing is going to a flop when a guy's, like, 25 to 35 big blinds deep. And, like, any C bet, if you come over the top of it very small, they, there are many people of the opinion they cannot flat that out of position or even in position 
and they'll need to defend for all of their chips. So you might be risking five big blinds to win seven, which means your bet needs to work oh, 40-ish percent of the time, or five to win 6.5 or whatever. But if your opponent's not prepared to jam with 60-plus percent of what the continuation bet, there's no way for them to defend it. And oftentimes, if they're opening 25-30% of the hands, as is all the rage now, because everybody's aggressive, there's just, in the continuation bet, the majority of those hands, they're going to need to, there are spots, like a guy's going to need to be jamming, he's going to need to be value three bet jamming ace high, not some of the time, but every single time he plays that pot with you. He cannot check a pair for pot control, because then that's going to, because if he's c-betting this much and he ever pot controls with certain not, certain hands, then it's weakening his c-betting range more. So he'll need to be like bet getting in with bottom pair and ace high. And if he's not doing that, there's no one on earth who can defend against it. And this is not something that you can just use to exploit like $22 buy-in players. These are – I've done this to – w. I was showing a few hands today this morning for lessons – and there was one versus a WSOP final tableist. You guys would all know if I said the name. Mm-hmm. There was one versus an EPT winner. And it's not they're bad players. It's not that that play doesn't work versus 99% of the people. It's just that a lot of people adhere to certain rules because that's the fashion. And they're really afraid to do something silly and then look bad because then all their friends are going to say, what are you, an idiot? Don't you read yeah. us too? Haven't you read? Look at Pisagno. Do you know who Pisagno is? Mm. Uh, no, no, no. He's a, he's a new sponsored pro from poker stars. I've been saying for years, like this guy's really good. People were, uh-huh. uh, he raised folds from like 14 big blinds. He's three bet folded from like 10 X. I'm not, I'm not kidding you. Okay. Yeah. And people are just like, he is terrible, but I'm, he plays a game where he does not care what anyone thinks of him and you cannot range him ever. And he yeah. he has a lot of logic to his play. And now he has something. I'm sure I'm exaggerating just a little, but I don't think I'm exaggerating that much. His average buy-in is like forty dollars, and he's up like five hundred thousand. Nice. He just has <laughs> no ego. He doesn't play the hundred R. He doesn't play any. I think he started doing that, but like people are starting to come around to like this Brazilian kid really knows what he's doing. I think his greatest advantage is he just never cared what other people thought. And if you actually go in and try to mathematic, instead of being judgmental toward these people that do something different than you, nice, nice radio there with the vibrating phone, by the way. But um, yeah, it was. Uh... <laughs> that, that, that's good pod, my friend. But anyhow, yeah. No, just make. That's uh, callers trying to get in with questions. Yeah, man. I'm <laughs> ringing off the hook for assassin yeah. Chalmers. But anyhow, they. Uh, but I mean, if you just stop being judgmental toward a lot of people. And you say, like, okay, he – maybe I think he doesn't even know what he's doing, but he clearly outplayed me here because I ended up folding and I had a decent hand, right? Yeah. yeah. And there was a – to give another example of a eureka moment, there was a guy I flatted in position and I was ready to come over the top of his double par- barrel and the guy just led 1.5x the pot. And, mm-hmm. and I just, you know, this effing idiot, I can't believe this, blah, 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 that's so stupid – and then I, you know, later on, I kind of, you know, admitted like, well, I ended up folding like, you know, and I, I was planning something and he completely got over it. He found a way out of it. And it was, uh, I, I thought, you know, how often does that bet need to work? Right. And then I was, mm-hmm. you know, it has to work about 60% of the time, like a 1.5 X pot. And then I, I went to Flopzilla. I put in the flop. I put in my calling range. Right. And I just put even like just a couple floats in. I was like, I'm folding way more than 60% most of the time. And if he thinks I'm planning something on the turn, this was a genius bet. But if I just sat there and said, I run so bad, you know what I mean? I I would have never learned anything. Uh, Anyway, beating that one to death. Yeah, Yeah, I I think for like Eureka moments, I think when I got a lesson with you, you really showed me like the, I was a little bit up in my head and you said a lot of Scottish and Irish guys are like that. <laughs> um, and, you know, you're convinced as soon as, you know, like I, I open cut off and I'm expecting the big blind to like three bet and he does. And I'm like, right, I knew he was going to do that. So like I four bet and then he like five bet jams on me and then I can, you know, you end up calling it off and he shows you two queens or something. And it's like, I just think you sort of helped me use the HUD, you know, in terms of the figures and the stats and sort of looking at it very, you know, analytically. 
Uh, I would say that for myself, but also perhaps just as a sort of uh, like meta concept, if you like, would be that when I thought, you know, I'm running bad, this is like so many 11th, so many 13ths and stuff like that from big tournaments, it was just not getting a, cr- a grasp of variance. And I think when people really truly feel variance you know like and they realize that it really just does come down to volume if you've got an edge in a game it doesn't matter you know what the 100 games 200 games are it's where you are after like 5,000 games you know well I'm talking about like sitting goes and 180s and stuff and I just think for me it was really that it was sort of going it really is irrelevant you know that you've heard it lots of times in books and stuff about don't worry about a session don't worry about a day and stuff but I just think once people get that, I think they need to like go through that. It's that talk of experience and something. You can preach to some young guy, and if he's only played like a thousand games or something, and he's up, you know, he's, you know, he's got maybe like he's won the Sunday Million, for example, and he's maybe won a few fifty, you know, freeze outs on stars. Uh, he's convinced that he's, you know, it's sustainable, you know, and the ROI is like eighty percent or something. And I just think once they've played that big sample and they have that huge downswing and then they really experience it, I think that's probably the biggest, like, eureka moment like, a lot of people get in terms of looking at, like, what guys like you say, you know, look at your return on investment, think about how many tables you play, your hourly rate and stuff like that. So that was the big thing I learned from, you know, getting lessons from you and, and speaking with, you know, a lot of guys that actually do this day in, day out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. there's a... I, there's something that came to my mind as you were talking about that. One thing that's really interesting to me in poker is what it reveals about our own prejudices. I, if you, if you are a very trusting person, you grow up thinking everybody's trustworthy. I'm sure you've met somebody like that, just trusted uh, a, a partner or trusted somebody in business they probably shouldn't have because. They couldn't dream. It's not even in their universe that they yeah. can do something. And then there's people that just lie all the time, and they think everybody's a liar. And a lot of poker players who are good see the opportunity in many different situations that arise in poker, and they think everybody else is seizing that opportunity. When yet mm-hmm. one of the purity, one of one of the things that's very nice about statistics is it gives you a very pure frame of reference. This guy doesn't think like that. If he only three bets 6% of the hands, he likely just has it. And there was something else that I was going to bring up in your analysis. The other thing about playing games for a living is you got to realize it's a game. If I put three cups in front of you and I said, I put a ball, I said, turn around, right? Put a, put it. And I put a ball under one and you turn around. I said, okay, pick the, pick the cup. If you pick, pick the ball with, you pick the cup with the ball. I wouldn't be like, oh my God, I'm the unluckiest person in the world. I would just, Okay you sucked out. Yeah. When, yeah. Pe- when people lose like ace king to ace 10, that's all that's happening. Now, if I said, let's do this 10 times. And if you win all 10 of them, you win a huge amount. Mm-hmm. If you got to the ninth time, you would be like, you, you know, get the F out of here. I can't even believe I'm this far. Right. Yeah. And then the 10th time you lose, you'd be like, yeah, but I mean, it's absurd. I even got this far. That's your job every day in poker is to get to that ninth time. And by the way, yeah. on that final shot, you don't have to pick one ball out of three cups. You've got to pick one out of nine because they're the best players. And you're going yeah. to be really – and there's a lot of times – I mean if you ran that every day, there would be like 20 days in a row where you know you probably didn't win one. Then there would be one day freakishly you won it five times. And it mm. wouldn't be that weird. If you play games for fun, I still make a point. I don't enjoy playing PlayStation like I used to when I was a kid and I had a few more brain cells bouncing against each other in my head to create – a euphoric feeling from pressing buttons, but I make a point to play video games and play video games with other people because you just see how much random stuff happens and you can't really do much about it. Or if you play like pinball versus a friend, there's a lot of times like the ball just comes down a weird angle and you can't do anything about it. You're not going to break the pinball machine. You're not going to turn to the guy and go, I play so much better than you. This stuff pisses me off. Why can't the ball come down a little slower and we could play a little less variant spot. You just got to send it right down the middle every time. This is such a joke. You wouldn't believe in any of that. But when people play poker for a living, somehow they're special. And because obviously the frame of reference we have is there is no like tournament leading up to the final table. When we watch TV poker, it's just final tables. It is Mm -hmm. so hard to make a final table. 
It is mm-hmm. incredibly variance-ridden. You can't get mad about not getting there. Anyhow, this time I really have beaten this to death. We should go to the next yeah, question. Yeah, that is. Okay, the next question, I think we'll go here. Um, I don't have the guy's name, but it was a question that we didn't cover last time, and I said we would, so we should cover this. Um, adjusting to regs in daily MTTs. Well, there's a... How do I play poker? <laughs> that would, yeah. I, mean, that's a, I mean, that's just what the gist is. Uh, the first thing is nobody's adjusting as much as you think they are. There, most people come in, play their game, want to play that fun, which is fine. But there was, a, there was like a three-month stretch when I came home from the World Series. I final tabled like eight of those $530 tournaments on lock and uh, merge. And, yeah, I uh, remember that. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, I was just doing stuff that's like massively exploitable if you could figure it out, right? And they're just, they just weren't doing it. And it was the same, like, 100 regs. And I was like, every week, I was like, okay, this is the week this isn't going to work, right? I, and I would do it again, and they would time bank, time bank, time bank, fold. And th- that could be a testament to perhaps the lack of versatility of American regs, which I wouldn't exactly speak down upon. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say there isn't an argument for that. But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's, you know, a lot of people are just playing their game. And if it works versus 99% of the players, they're not going to, if I outplay them in one pot, they're, I always just, I don't want them to feel bad. You know, like, yeah, I had it, you know, good fold. And they, they're just, all right, you know, the guy hit a hand, whatever, and they move on. And mm-hmm. even when you get to, like, some of the best regs, it, it's more just about keeping notes. Anytime a hand of yours is turned over, write down what you showed. Like, I showed a huge bluff deep in the WCOOP 1K. And, or I didn't show the bluff, but I raised so much of my stack and then folded. It was just really obvious, kind of like the hand versus Kyle Julius in the PCA. But, uh, mm-hmm. and at the final table I had, I flopped the flush and a guy bet and I did another one of these huge raises, right? Like when I didn't have it and the guy jammed on me with, uh, I mean, he had a draw, but it, it was pretty much, he got in ace high for 50 big blinds. And mm-hmm. he, but I mean, the number of times you really truly get to adjust and do a really sick game of rock, paper, scissors where you got ahead of the guy in MTTs doesn't happen as much. If you can focus on these little spots that a lot of people have trouble with, you're going to, you're going to score a lot of the time. And then it's just making sure you don't break the ATM. You don't just like keep hammering on it. There's a reg from South America. Who's maybe somebody can guess who it is. He's a very good player, but he has a over my, database i just i i was i i was bragging one day about how good this play worked right with one of my mm-hmm. students i said if you three bet him from this certain stack size he never plays back and mm-hmm. it actually I'll, I'll just say what it was it was like 23 big blinds 22 he blo- mm-hmm. he believed he had a blank check to raise from that stack because if you three bet him you had to have it because nobody would ever dream of three bet folding right to that stack. Mm-hmm. That's how he sees it because he would never three bet fold to that stack. So, yeah. and I, I pulled it up, you know, I put in all the filters, which probably took 15 minutes, but yeah, because of how fun the editing software is with hold the manager. And it was something like yeah. 80% fold to three bet. And every time he jammed, I had to like, you know, I, I couldn't fold like right away. I'd just go, Oh my God, I didn't realize it was you who opened. I have seven, seven, uh-huh. but I don't think it's good or something like that. And yeah, it was, but if that's good against that reg, if you just work on the way I got to that was, you know, just going over my own hands, talking with other players. It's really important to talk with other people because somebody might see something you don't see. And the other thing is just like never just like clicking past a hand unless, I mean, unless it's like nine deuce offsuit under the gun plus one. But if a guy opens the button and he has a high fold to three bet, you got to challenge your assumptions. Like, can I not three bet fold to this stack? Probably somebody else says, no, it's like, well, let's run it. Like, let's see if he has a shoving range and we have this hand, do we need to call versus the all in? If the, if the answer is no, then perhaps you should consider a three bet fold. Then you should start doing it. Then you should mark the hands. And now that's not going to work just versus that reg, but every reg that studies under that reg, every reg who plays a lot like that reg, and you'll end up, and then it's just, 
the other thing is you really need to pay attention to session statistics. A lot of people come in after a big win, and it's uh, some people call it winner's tilt, or like the player you were describing who just won the Sunday Million. He's not, yeah. you know, he's not going to be seeing things logically for a little while, and uh-huh. he's just probably his. He's probably not going to be hitting the fold button that much, and you know that that would be the way most people play. Some guys knit it up because they think my nitty strategy worked before. I'm going to knit it up more, and you got to see how he's playing that day because there was a guy from Latvia, very very good reg I was playing with in uh, on full tilt the other week. He's normally a very solid player, but I I flopped uh, like two pair. I checked to him out of position and he bet and I checked jam like it was a draw the second he put it out there and he snapped me off with ace king high, which was uh-huh. not like a normal thing. But that day he was playing more aggressive and I, I just thought like if I keep the action faster, going fast, maybe I can, I can get him to gamble a little with me. And he did. He gambled with me in a big way and I mm-hmm. ended up winning a nice pot. Nice. Nice. Okay, so basically go through your notes, check your hold the manager, and uh, just start thinking a bit more rather than, as you say, having assumptions. And just because you know something, it doesn't mean everyone at the table knows that and has those same assumptions. There's a there's another thing that just came in my mind. I've been I've been perusing how I made my first million at poker by I think his name's Treewin. Do you know how to pronounce it? Try uh, daily yeah. guy. Tree win, yeah. Tree win. Slow habit. I've got that book. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great book. But he said one of the biggest mistakes people make is like when they think other people think like them. If you're a good player, you think a lot of people see through your stuff. He pointed out, assuming your opponent plays optimally means the game's over. That's mm-hmm. like you're never gonna find anything new again. Therefore, you can't just assume until you've proven it that this guy plays optimally. And proving it in a cash game might mean you have to try it like 10 times over and to make sure he doesn't get a very clear idea of what you're doing. You can't just do it in the first three days you think of it. You might have to do it over two weeks and you have to balance it with something. The great thing about tournaments is by the time the guy figures it out, you're probably at another table. So yeah. you, can, you can be a little more exploitable and you can try things. If you take a range in Flopzilla and you find like this guy's going to have to jam like a seven off for this many big blinds and i don't think it's possible you should go ahead and try it because nine times out of ten a good rag if he sees something weird he hasn't seen before it's probably just going to fold yeah cool okay uh the next question is a guy that you emailed me this one alex it's from rudolph's bondars ah uh, good old latvian kid Latvian, I was definitely going to say Euro. <laughs> I was thinking, yeah, okay. So uh, let me just sort of paraphrase what he's saying because it's quite a long email. Mm-hmm. He's basically speaking about his deep runs. And recently, they're sort of ending. You know, he's maybe sitting with 50 to 80 big blinds, 100 players left, thinks he has a shot at the tournament. And he'll maybe go card dead or, or even spot dead. He just, you know, isn't finding any... Uh, moves that he can make and he's saying that he sort of just maybe knits it up a bit more um, but is it good to try and raise fold more or three bet fold more in these dead periods even if he doesn't think it's the best play just to loosen his image or is it better to wait you know for and just sit tight for a, for a good spot if you think about it logically you probably should be tightening up just a bit near the end because logically that's when most of the good players should be coming out to play because they've waded through the thousand or two thousand players that I, I know I know Rudolph's and uh, the person who sent in the question and I know he plays a lot of big fields and one thing I would say to do to improve this the first thing you need to realize is a lot of people punt tournaments because they feel like I'm not doing enough or they feel as if they need to get their chips back uh, Matt Affleck, a uh, friend of mine I've, I knew from from when I was really young, living in the university district in Seattle. And yeah. uh, he had two runs in the WSOP, both with uh, main event, both with very different results. One was the very heartbreaking. He lost aces to <coughs> do Hamill's jacks, excuse me, and uh, to not go into the final table as the chip leader. But the year before, he seven bet 
you know, bluffed <laughs> on, yeah. a, on a board or something like that. And, you know, he, he told me, I, I don't know if he wants me sharing this, but, you know, he's a pretty, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I made a, made a very weird noise on my end. He, uh, oh. he told me he felt as if he needed to get his chips back after he lost a pot. And the next year he just completely corrected that. And if watching his play the next year was just kind of spooky, it was just, he was so focused and he, he accepted losses. And if you graph anybody's trajectory, their chip, uh, movements going into final tables, you'd see a lot of up and down, especially the best players go up and down quite a bit because Mm -hmm. obviously not a ton. Hopefully you want to carve out pots and whatnot, but you're going to go up and down. There's not a whole lot you can do about it in many occasions. You just want to, you need more time in the flight simulator as well. A lot of, a lot of time reviewing hands, a lot of time talking with other good players to the point I felt, I'll admit I got nervous during my PCA run in 2012. I think, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was 2012, but not like any year before that because I'd get like, woo, this is, you know, when I stopped and think about it, I'd be like, oh, this is a big pot. But every play I did, even the failed bluff they showed with me and Kyle Julius and the jam versus Juan Lu, all those plays, like I'd worked out quite a bit. And yeah. maybe my assumptions were wrong. And I, I wish I could take back the last hand versus Juan Lu because I think I could play a different form of poker that would do a lot better. But it was still a very calculated risk. I'd won four of the last like nine hands that happened. I was playing most of the pots. I was three betting a lot of people. And I thought she should logically be three betting here with a pretty wide range. She probably thinks I'm opening pretty wide. So I should jam. I, If I'd thought about it a step further, maybe I should have limped in and called the called that instead of taking the high variance spot but i certainly didn't feel my jam was subpar but i i could get i get re- i used to get really nervous when i played deep in tournaments and really didn't play like i was scared out of my mind deep in san ramo and i don't think it mm-hmm. affected my play that much but it definitely just working on my game privately you kind of you, you take away the fear a little bit more so getting a lot of a lot of practice and a lot of time in that kind of like flight simulator gives you that experience going through the hands, thinking about just if I was telling other people how to play, what would I do? There was many times there was one hand, uh, there was one hand they showed. I three bet a guy with nothing on a a flush board, a full flush board. That's a board I three bet all the time uh, online. But if I hadn't studied about it, prior to that I probably would have freaked out and not done it or I would have done it in a spot that really didn't make much sense there was a lot of three bet bluffs and uh five bet bluffs I wouldn't have done normally but it uh it made a lot of sense when I thought about the hands logically in the same framework I help my students with or I discuss hands with my friends if I didn't have that I'd be going a little more on piss and vinegar and trying to get through things and that's when you start really doubting yourself because because then it becomes a very uneducated, very hard to quantify test of endurance and balls as opposed yeah. to a strategy game where there's real definitive things you can figure out. Uh, I have to play slow a lot when I get deep in tournaments. I mean, that's just how it goes. There's a lot of times I can't play many hands and I have to remember like the last like 100R I played, just every pot was like four or five bets. So I ended up waiting around a lot and then, you know, getting it in with, you know, way too many chips with Ace Jack, but I ended up doing pretty well. And the other thing is to play small tournaments on these smaller sites. If you just play on stars, you're, you're not going to be that deep when you do get deep. I mean, you're not going to be that deep in as far as chips when you do get to the last few players, you're not going to get deep as often because you have to get through so many players. And usually you need the score so badly. You're very unlikely to think correctly. If you play on, I almost was going to say ultimate bet. That would have been pretty funny. I was, <laughs> I was thinking party. I don't know why ultimate bet was coming out of my mouth. But ultimate yeah. bet, when I started in uh, 2006, I didn't know anything about poker. And I would play this 109 tournament late at night that got like 100 runners. And there was one, uh, there was one streak I won it three nights in a row. And it wasn't because I was good. I was really bad. But everybody was 
everybody was just really bad. And then I stopped getting as nervous at final tables because I just got to play so many of them. So mm-hmm. playing on party poker, eye poker is really good. A lot of like really soft tournaments, 888, uh, full tilt. Eh, you know, it's a, the fields are a little smaller right now, but uh, the players are pretty decent. And it, it, getting, getting your experience in through that and playing a lot of final tables will help you relax a little more. And playing these 100, 200 person fields allow you to build with a bread and butter game that we spoke about in the last episode and not take it so seriously when you get deep in these tournaments. But go over the hands with your friends. Take it one hand at a time. What would you do here? What would you think here? See how many spots you're missing. And then the next time you get deep, put in the work again. Pull it up. Try to get, uh, try to see as many mistakes as you made. Or not mistakes, but lost opportunities. And when you get to the point you can't count them, like you're not counting them on all your hands and toes anymore mm-hmm. it, once you aren't like seeing 30 different things there's a god barry can you hear me yeah yeah it just yeah. keeps making this weird noise anyhow but they uh, uh, the internet did drop out you know it, it might just be a thingy connection but no i can hear you loud and clear okay great but uh i mean there was just i was just doing a report for this one stable and they had me watching this one guy's tournament there was literally 40 different things i would have changed and then a lot of these guys, you know, we keep sending back the reports. They read it. They read all the follow-up work. They send in another. And then once it gets down to like five, six different things, and they're more of like, you know, they're more of a matter of opinion more than quantify. Like without a doubt, you made a mistake here. Once mm-hmm. once it gets to that point, you're knowing you're doing that well. This is how Nas has started. Nas at 114, when I met him years and years ago, he just – there was just lots of little things he could have picked up on, but he wrote it down. He picked one a day. He stuck it on his computer. He worked on it in the middle stages, not just, you know, early. I mean, not just in late stages did he decide, all right, time to audition something new. Mm-hmm. And uh, he just got better and better at him. And it got to the point we were watching hand histories. I was like, I feel bad like charging you money anymore. You know, it's just everything that we're discussing is a matter of opinion at this point. And you yeah. too, even when I think I found a mistake, he's had a lot of things backing up his decision. Once you can do that and you can hang with a good pro, you need to find somebody that you respect who plays poker to discuss with. And they need to be open minded. And a lot of people, frankly, won't do it for free. I try to do it for a price that most people can afford. But there's coaches cheaper than me. You know, like we said at the beginning of the show, everybody's broken poker. If you can find one of these guys really enjoys like teaching you, maybe you could start with them. And then – and even I have to show my hands to a lot of different people and look at them. And it's not till the point where nobody's – in when you get to the point where nobody's teaching you anything, you're not looking hard enough. And eventually you're just going to have thought about every situation so much. You're going to really find a lack of insecurity in your game anymore. And when you go deep and crash and burn – it happens. I crashed and burned. I, I just started playing MTTs with my horse because he lives down the street. And, I'm, and uh, I want him to watch me play because he can learn something. I final tabled with the Chipley, this $20 cubed on full tilt, and I just like crashed and burned spectacularly. But I didn't, <laughs> you know, I, all right, yeah, you know, like walked up from the, you know, walked up, didn't really matter. The other thing is gambling with money you can afford to lose. If you have a backer, you're, I can tell you as a backer, a very small-time backer right now, don't please do not send me applications. I'll probably – well, I, I, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Okay, I, I'm not taking on anyone new. I have enough work as it is. But it being a more large-scale backer before, the worst feeling is when your horse feels guilty to you because it's like don't feel guilty. Just play. Let me worry about the money. Okay? Mm-hmm. And if I'm putting my worry – of the money onto you, I'm a crappy, uh, I'm managing my stable very poorly. That's not Mm. some, if any guy is putting that pressure on you, that's not, your job is not to worry about the money. His job is to worry about the money. Your job is to worry about playing your best, making sure you're playing enough tables that you can pay attention as much as possible, making sure your play is improving every session and also completely lost my train of thought where it was just going playing with money. You can, 
you know, you know, you want it to be enough that it hurts, but not so much that it makes you panic when you're deep. If, yeah. if you've been doing bad and your horse is giving you a hard, I mean, your backer is giving you a hard time. When you get out of that makeup, you need to find another backer. If you should feel that your only focus is to play and to learn, you can learn every time you play poker. You cannot make money every time you play poker. And in fact, most of the time you're not going to make money when you play tournament poker. That pretty much sums it up. And if you're playing on your own, make sure you play a low enough stake that you can stand it, but not such high stakes that you, you're going to be really sweating every decision. Every time I took a shot, it didn't work. As long as I kept 200, 300 buy-ins in my role, I always did well. It took me a year to make my first 1,000 just playing $5 tournaments. Even when I... Even when I turned pro and I had six months of savings in the bank and all that, I was still playing $30 sit and goes. And, mm -hmm. But I went from that at 18, you know, I went from 17 years old living in this crappy house using food stamps, uh, uh, not, not very fun things happening with the family and stuff like that, to 18 living in my friend's garage, to 19 traveling the world playing 5Ks and 10Ks. And that was playing mm -hmm. with 200 buy-ins for MTTs, 300 buy-ins for MTTs, and 100 buy-ins for cash games. And yeah. you know, people gave me crap when I played like five, $10 tournaments when I had thousands in my bankroll. People asked me, how could you even call yourself a professional? But I was learning more than everyone every day I played because I wasn't worried. And I made a lot more money because I wasn't worried. I was just playing my game. And I think, yeah, okay, yeah, I think I've wound my wheels up on that question quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, also, Rudolph, I don't know if you listened to the last episode we did, but we sort of spoke about something you said to me uh, again when I got a lesson from yourself, and it was about being deep in tournaments and just sort of reminding yourself that you're lucky to be even in that situation in terms of the big picture, playing poker, whether you play it for a living or a hobby, you know, you're actually playing a game for money you know, that could be decent money and you're playing it in a warm house, uh, presumably, you know, <laughs> right. and uh, unless you've spent all your money, you know, on, on poker and you can't afford heating. Or if you live but, in um, Latvia, but anyway. Yeah, or, or Scotland, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, just sort of like really just remember that and like you say, learn and just it is only a game and if you make, there's nothing worse than like, even from my point of view, when I bust out a tournament, if I've made the right, what I thought at the time was the right decision, even if it's not the right decision, if it's what I thought at the time was the right decision, I'm happy. When I'm not happy is like you say, if I felt like I'm chasing chips back or I'm feeling I have to make a move and you just end up being very spewy. And I think you're right. A lot of people do that when they're down to like 50. Sometimes they think they need to force it a bit, like you say, and they've not done that throughout the tournament and they've got there, right. but then all of a sudden they feel like they need to be four bet bluffing and stuff like that. And, I was guilty of tons of that stuff, you know, spewing stacks deep in like, you know, 100 left in big tournaments and then just thought like, oh, and then you look back and you think, shit, you know, that was, that was, that was bad. That was really bad. You bring up some really good points. Something that crossed my mind as you were talking there. Uh, do you know, uh, I think his name is Chuck Bass. I never, no, I never read no. two plus two. Uh, he's pretty much famous for, from what I understand, he's a huge crap talker and you know and there was a one of my friends who's also a backer he sends this post where this guy's backer got on the two plus two forums when this guy this guy was just going after this really accomplished reg because he just doesn't you know he he's kind of a solid player he doesn't really go after anything and he said yeah. the biggest problem with you and he revealed this guy he revealed this guy's makeup total which i mm -hmm. i don't think is like public business but you can uh you can look it up. It's pretty easy. I, I'll just say it. It was like 150,000, right? It was pretty. Okay. It was pretty. It was pretty substantial. And he said, you know, how many months of the year have you actually been playing, uh, winning poker? Your problem is you think to be one of the best players, you got to do these sick plays all the time. You need to be caught floating two streets to jam the river as a bluff. You need to be five betting and showing a deuce. When mm -hmm. in reality. I think Sea Beast is a fantastic example of this. He, you know, he plays a very solid game and he's won so many different majors and he's been successful for years. 
or even a guy a lot of people give a hard time to is R.D. Carson. And though I disagree with a lot of things, Artie, I, I disagree with Artie Carson's approach to poker. I cannot deny he's a better professional than me because he plays consistent day in, day out, and he's made a lot of money doing it. And he's a little more solid. And he's been around for five, six years. You know, and there's nothing, you don't have to do anything super sick when you get deep. And you brought up another point, which is you are lucky just to play a game. Every day I wake up, and this isn't, BS. This is one of the most interesting things Froz Jaka taught me. We were, it used to be popular around like 2007, 2008. We, a lot of the young guys in poker got a little too much money, a little too fast, and we didn't have enough responsibility growing up. And Mm -hmm. then there was like me tagging along, had blown all my money and around a lot of people that were clearly much smarter than me. I was pissed off. I couldn't be jaded with a lot of money with them. But Jaka like, (laughs) Jaka like turned to me and he was like, he, he said to this. He said this one thing. He was like, "I never understand." He he got really serious, and he never gets serious. He's like, "I never understand why these guys say they don't like poker. How could you do something for a living if you don't like doing it? That goes mm-hmm. for anything in life. Why yeah. you should you should love what you like to do." And it was you know there was a lot of guys that you know I just don't really like poker. I'm still this is I've been doing this since I was I mean since I was 15 years old I pretty much ran games in the cafeteria, ran games in the back of my classes and used it to buy my comic books and Cokes and whatever and been doing it for professionally since I was 18 years old. I'm 25 now. I still wake up every day and thank God I play a game for a living. I get a lot of, I I get so many more opportunities that nobody really had. I'm not restricted by any economy that are a boss that's going to hire the boss's son or something like that. It's completely up to me. And there's a lot of failure involved. But the other option is accepting somebody else's piecemeal to you, getting mm-hmm. paid under what you're worth to make somebody else rich. And with the knowledge that there's no real job security anymore because there's just too many people on this earth. And they, if they dump you, they can find somebody else. And yeah, if you have a nice... It, there's so much freedom allowed in poker too. I get to... I used to love reading, but I couldn't do it in high school because I was too busy studying for a life. You know, like I couldn't learn because I was studying to go work in the workforce. And I wasn't studying. I was doing rote memorization over and over again. And all I thought about is I just – one of the first things I did when I I quit my job to be a pro is I went down to the library and I just grabbed like 40 books I wanted to read. And I just put them next to my bed and I just tore through them every time I was pissed. And mm-hmm. it just to have the luxury to like read or like study or do something you actually enjoy, learn about something you enjoy is incredible. So part of that deal is you can't get frustrated when you get deep. You get, you're going to have so many phases you don't have a win. I broke – I mean I've shared this before but last year turned into a good year, 2012. But I, I lost like $160,000 before – I've never done that in my life right before the W Coop win and I final table the big one oh nine and a few other tournaments yeah. and like, you know, barely got out of it. And I, I had money from the beginning of the year, you know, the seventy K PCA score and some other scores. But it like mm-hmm. it turned out to be a great year. But I had to part of being a high stakes professional is I had to deal with a hundred and sixty thousand dollar downswing. And that's a that's not even that different. I talk to a lot of people that deal with that now. MTTs are one of the most difficult avenues you could take in poker. And there's no shame in playing 50 NL or 100 NL for a living. I know a lot mm-hmm. of guys that make good money from that. Anyway, yeah. and with most of my rants, I just kind of run into a wall and I don't know how to end it. And now I'm here. Yeah, cool. Anyhow, you, as you said, you like to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, we need to give a shout out to uh, Holly17. A uh, Scottish player, he got third in the Sunday Million just there um, ah, for a hundred hundred and twenty-two k. Wow. Um, he was on your final table at the one k W Cup. Oh yeah. I think he got sixth or fifth in that. Yeah. I am not lying when I say I have no. Ma- oh no no no, he played solid. He played solid. I remember him. Yeah, he was pretty good. Don't, yeah, cool. Can't, rem- can't remember anything really specific, but I. No, he's an absolute fish. He is a Scottish fish. <laughs> oh, tell him like it is. Yeah. Nah, he's cool. He's a cool guy. So uh, well done, Holly17. 
Um, okay, just to close the business, that's a sort of like approach just over the hour mark now. And that's all the questions done apart from two there, but it's good to keep a few back for the next show. So the next episode will be in two weeks, hopefully, which will be the week of the 24th of April, around about that time we'll look to do another one of these. Um, remember to follow us on Twitter at oneouter.com and at The Assassinato. Uh, check out Alex's site, pokerheadrush.com. And also, if you wish to speak to Alex on a one-to-one basis about, you know, poker and how to take your game to that sort of level of, you know, analysing your play and just, you know, and speaking from experience, I've had a few lessons with Alex and, you know, I personally recommend them. Uh, you can contact Alex at assassinatocoaching at gmail.com and you can find details about that on the post on oneouter.com of where this podcast is. Um, anything you want to say, Alex? Oh, it was great. Check me out on Facebook at facebook.com slash assassinato, uh, poker head rush. Uh, check, check out my training videos at pocket fives training. Yeah. All that good stuff. Thank you guys for listening. It's a good time every time. Cool. Okay. So we'll look to do this in two weeks and, uh, hopefully you guys can tweet in some questions, keep them coming and, um, we'll see what we can do with them. Okay. Thanks for listening. Thank you guys. Take care. Cheers. As a oneouter.com podcast listener, we're offering a special discount for joining PokerXFactor.com. You can qualify for a massive $70 off your sign-up. All you need to do is enter promotional code OneOuter70. That's O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-7-0.